Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. The gin and tonic. Perhaps it doesn't share the elegance of a martini or the geekiness of a Ramos gin fizz, but it's hard to look past the G&T when considering which is the world's most recognizable gin cocktail. I mean, the clue's right there in the name. And the gin and tonic is a bona fide cocktail, one that's just as full of history as it is flavor and sessionability. Devised hundreds of years ago for quote-unquote medicinal purposes, the G&T has gone from strength to strength in recent years, thanks to a proliferation of new gin brands and higher quality tonic waters. Simon Ford is responsible for one of those brands, and throughout decades in the industry, sorry for uh, aging you there, Simon, he's been one of the major individuals that's helped drinkers and bartenders understand and fall in love with gin all over again. Needless to say, he knows more than a thing or two about the G&T and can wax lyrical about the drink's history, preparation, and modern-day elevation. Ice and slice at the ready. Take it away, Mr. Simon Ford. Recording. Producer Keith, I think you're going to need to get Sting on the phone because you've got a couple of Brits out here hanging out in New York. And I say that, of course, because I'm very happy to welcome Simon Ford to the show. Simon. It's great to be here. And obviously talking about my favorite topic, classic cocktail. So uh, love the show, love what it's all about, and uh, glad we can talk about another drink today. Thank you, Simon. And I think, yeah, we, we, we should definitely point out early on that by this point, regular listeners of the show will be very familiar with yourself, or at least your gin brand, because... I feel like Forged Gin comes up so often that I felt like we have to reach out to you. And, and, and I know you have that extensive also history in bartending yourself too. So I felt like it was, it was becoming a bit awkward. We had to get you on the show because this, this, is, this is overdue by this point. I know. I promise, I, I promise this is like when we haven't sponsored this. I'm here, I'm here as a guest. This is organic. <laughs> this is not pay to play. <laughs> and, you know, we're... we're and I, History also being something which I know is dear to your heart. And we are going to get into an incredible historical cocktail today because, you know, the gin and tonic, um, deep, it's drenched in history, like so many of these gin drinks are that we've mentioned so far. But I think this one, perhaps even more so than others, right? Like, we're going to get into that. That's going to be great. Well, it's another one of those great classic drinks that is quote unquote for medicinal purposes you know I, you know obviously you talked with toby about the um the gimlet you know and scurvy and 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 vitamin c uh, you know that happened and of course the pink gin for a stomach upset while at sea so there's many drinks a lot of them gin drinks because they were created on board ships of the merchant navy were created for medicinal purposes and gin and tonic is another one that sort of brits abroad but not Brits abroad, like, you know, <laughs> causing trouble in the south of Spain, but Brits abroad, um, you know, uh, finding a way to not be sick while they travel. And the gin and tonic is kind of ensconced in that history of ultimately having a and finding a super a super drug, which is quinine, mm-hmm. quinine, 
that comes from this bark that stops malaria. It's anti-malarial and has other sort of benefits, but it tastes mm. pretty disgusting on its own. So, <laughs> the, you know, over, over, over the course of uh, uh, probably a few centuries, they figure out how to actually make it taste palatable. And that's mm-hmm. usually when you introduce some form of... Uh, spirit to the to the the mix and of course what more british spirit could you sort of bring to the mix uh, other than perhaps you know there's rum but gin gin of course and and interesting here too that like you mentioned there we've discussed the gimlet before and that was that was in terms of trying to trying to make sure that you were able to preserve this this fresh ingredient right the lime juice but like you said here the key to tonic water and the g&t essentially is making that life-saving almost right ingredient like potable and actually palatable and something you can drink so tell us tell us briefly bring us bring us up to somewhat of a modern day like where do, sure. where did gin and tonic meet and and, and what brings this to well, being this this essentially yeah. british cocktail yeah it, it, you know to, to think of how long it took the gin and tonic to develop you know the the the, the r&d process was about 400, 500 years <laughs> before they actually had gin and tonic tasting as good as it does today. You know, and you, if you, you can go back and look at the history of gin because gin starts itself as a very primitive, badly made, poor spirit. You have the gin craze where it's old Tom gin. It's known as Mother's Ruin. Uh, gin Lane is painted by William Hogarth to depict how bad gin is. And then the government comes in and starts to legislate gin after it'd been really uh, you know for sale in england for 150 years at this point but sort of considered an illicit and not very good for you product but then around the 1750s they put in all of these gin acts they put in all of these acts of parliament to regulate how gin is made and then you have wealthy merchants get involved and they start making the recipes that we now know today and they start putting a spin on it that's of quality and of course you start bringing in all of these herbs and spices that are being discovered around the world and it starts to get more and more exciting as a category mm-hmm. so we're already 150 years into sort of trying to make gin palatable <laughs> at this point and then if you sort of go back to the 1600s you know and you're sort of in peru and um, bolivia and this part of south america well there's the quina tree and there's this magical bark the chinchona bark which has this powder that you can derive from it that basically cures chills and it didn't taste very good but there were jesuits that went out and they saw it them taking it for these chills and it wasn't very palatable but they did the same thing and they started adding sugar so all of a sudden you start to get the basis of what will be tonic water uh, over uh, over there and while meanwhile back in england you're getting the basis of what is going to be gin but of course the two need to meet at some point now I guess the, the 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 dirty part of this history is that you know there was colonization going on and the mm-hmm. British East India Trading Company are sort of traveling around the world, and they were a private company actually. It was this wasn't you know going out there? And if they were, it's it's crazy to think that as a private company and how capitalism manifested itself back then, they had an army of about two hundred and sixty thousand troops. Jeez. Which I know, right? And it was about <laughs> twice the size of the English army itself at the time. That's and crazy. They had amassed a wealth as a company, which, if it was in today's money, is akin to about seven, eight trillion oh US God. dollars, right? So we're talking eight Elon Musks. Yeah. You know, and yet these are just annoying British people with bad mustaches and, you know, stupid helmets, right? You know, mm-hmm. going around the world with their guns and pompousness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so you, you, you have, you know, that going on, and they discover that this quinine is going to stop malaria, which was a massive killer. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, they start protecting the fields where this quinine was coming from and t- taking it for themselves so that they could be the ones that didn't get malaria. So, of course, all of a sudden, you have the British and the Dutch, but separately getting their hands on all of this, uh, you know, chinchona bark, growing trees, growing farms, and it became one of the biggest commodities in the world. And, of course, they set their armies to protect it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that's sort of going on uh, with the, I guess, the quinine and so on. And meanwhile, things are getting better over in England when it comes to gin because they're starting to develop these great brands. The gin palaces are opening yeah. and everyone's drinking punch and classic cocktails are sort of starting to emerge, mm-hmm. um, you know, around the beginning of the 1800s because I think the gin and tonic, the way it sort of is today, sort of comes to play around 1850 in India. Mm-hmm. But really the journey from there, and it really sort of starts, and I'm going to look at my notes, so I apologize, but it's like this guy is 1772. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy called Joseph Priestley. He's a chemist, and he's the first guy that essentially isolates oxygen in a gaseous form and then puts it into liquid. So essentially we have carbonation for the very first time. Jeez. You know, so this is going to play into... into um, how the gin and tonic develops, right? But if we go back to, because I'm saying this sort of happens in 1772 and the gin and tonic sort of starts to take off in 1850, but the gin and quinine did meet each other ahead of that. And I like to think of um, the gin and tonic, the original version, as a cocktail. So in 1806, we get our first definition of the cocktail. Of the York, cocktail. Of the cocktail, yeah, exactly, in New mm-hmm. York City. And that's sugar, bitters, alcohol, water. And so here you have gin. Mm-hmm. You have quinine, which is bitter. So they've added sugar, yeah, which they were doing since the Jesuits had discovered it. And then water to lengthen it or ice. And so essentially the original gin and tonics. Mm-hmm. And of course the gin was being added because I think they, the saying is quinine to stop the malaria and gin to alleviate the boredom. And that was kind <laughs> of like the, the, I think that was the saying of the British Empire at the time. It, it, I find that so interesting. Just as a, a brief sidestep here, that we can come up with this definition for a cocktail, but that it's sufficiently loose so that you can have something, two things so different, which are like the old-fashioned on one hand and the gin and tonic on the other, both of which accurately fit this description that you just laid out, but that couldn't be more different. I guess this is how it could probably developed from that style of drink that's more like an old-fashioned into this highball that we drink today, you know, is this mm-hmm. sort of invention of carbonation so of course this chemist pierre joseph pelletier and joseph cavatou those two they're french and they learn how to isolate um the quinine powder and turn it essentially into this sort of uh, just a a, a, a a substance that you can mix into water and it's now no longer cl- cloudy so you know when you get the quinine powder and you mm-hmm. see some of the syrups it's dark in contrast right. they have managed to isolate all of the best parts, the flavor, into this clear liquid. And now that can be added to water. And, of course, now you can take Joseph Priestley's invention of carbonation and put the two together. So now mm-hmm. tonic water can essentially be created and made. And I guess wow. it would be um, Johann Jakob Schwepp mm-hmm. who finally does this in Switzerland. So, of course, he's the, he's the person that um, brings this all together. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that was around sort of 
Yeah, the 1850s, mm-hmm. you know, that he sort of finally gets that going. I think he created that invention. Let's not get too hung up on dates, right? Mm-hmm. But early early 1800s, he, he, he launches his business. It was actually at the late 1700s. He launches his business. It actually went out of business at the very beginning. And it was after he moved it to London, which is really bizarre. And so it's one of Darwin's uh, relatives that champions it. And they sponsor really? one of yeah, and they sponsor one of the world fairs that happens in London. Mm-hmm. I and wonder if that's the same one that um, Sebastian was telling us about with the pink gin, and when that he, he, he possibly a different one. I know there was a sure. couple of world fairs, but like where six million people came through the doors, and ultimately, like if you if you want to showcase a product, right? Like over the course of it, six million people in that time is a significant number. Yeah, well, I mean, they sold a million bottles, so Jeez. it's, you know, and that's... One in six picked one up. <laughs> exactly, and then all of a sudden, and you see, they got started getting shipped out mm-hmm. to India, this the Schweppes tonic, and getting mixed with the gin that way. And what was really interesting about how they shipped it back then, if you see an old Schweppes tonic bottle, they look like a, um, a torpedo, mm-hmm. and they would hang in the same things that torpedoes would on board the ships, and so they, you couldn't put the bottle down. You know, uh, they had this sort of rounded, rounded, rounded bottom. That's, so that's crazy. What, you know, was sort of happening in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And, and Johann Jakob Schwepp uh, was smart. He patented his process. Ah, clever yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long a patent um, is, uh, is, is allowed, but there probably wasn't a lot of competition for a while because, no. yeah, because yeah, Schwepp's dominated. <laughs> and I think that's an incredible foundation to this story then is there is there anything else that you that you think needs to to bring us kind of slightly closer to the future or how about you 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 tell us next where essentially where was this drink when you started out in kind of bars yourself in the industry because to my mind it had become this kind of stuffy or old thing right quintessentially british but Nothing like the reputation that it enjoys today. No, sure. I mean, if you think of gin and tonic in its heyday back in England, mm-hmm. you know, in this Schweppes period, <clears throat> then, you know, the ice trade had began. Yeah. Beginning of the 1800s, right? Frederick Tudor. And so it became quite the drink of, I guess, the upper class is the gin and tonic. But then for somehow it sort of developed into this pub drink. Mm-hmm. And I would go into a pub when I was young. <laughs> and if you ordered a gin and tonic... The bartender would say, ice in a slice. And they would have this little plastic bucket on the bar. And in that plastic bucket would be wilted white ice that had been there all day. And they'd maybe, if you were lucky, they would grab two ice cubes. And then oh there would be this little tray of, of slices of lemon that just looked so sorry. They were like desperate for some kind of, you know, any, any kind of moisture just to keep them, you know, from dehydrating on their own. And, um, and they would pour... 25 mls and you'd get this little um at least it was bottled tonic actually thinking right? about that Fair you enough. know there wasn't gun tonic and um <laughs> but 25 ml roughly one ounce yeah. here for our american it, listeners right i think <laughs> yeah, so right exactly just, roughly, short on, yeah. just short on one ounce exactly yeah. and um they would and you would get that and you would pour your own tonic in and honestly it's two gulps really this 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 <laughs> this drink and i hate to say this but it was still quite good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 600 years almost of R&D have gone into that. So yeah. <laughs> it, we, we've reached something of a fail-safe 
solution but uh, combination. You know, but of course, you get the, the price and you know that a beer is the same and the beer is going to last you a little bit longer. And so, you know, you didn't do it. And I think if the gin would come out of an optic, you know. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, what was quite interesting about that period, and I, I, and I remember this quite well because the, the birth of the cocktail, the modern cocktail bar, you know, sort of milk and honey onwards or... Yeah. If I'm to think about 2000-ish London. 2000-ish onwards or... Yeah, end of the 90s, uh, 2000-ish onwards. You know, like I think in the end of the 90s, you sort of had Match Group and a few other places in London that were sort mm-hmm. of starting to open and Dick Bradsall was doing yeah. his thing. Um, and ice became a thing. It was like... Already know, back then. Well, just about then, right? Yeah. It was like, you got to fill the glass with ice. And of course, it was part of an education because of people would come into your bar and say, you're putting all this ice in, which means there's no... Yeah. booze in there right <laughs> you know dilution. actually everything's measured no matter what the ice makes no difference <laughs> you know that was a that was a hard thing for any bartender at that time to convince mm-hmm. but that led to because the cocktails were being served that way to the gin and tonic being served that way and i do remember certain gin brands at the time and of course i don't want to plug them i'm <laughs> <laughs> um, doing this perfect serve Mm-hmm. Um, of gin and tonics, but it actually really was good because it was consistent messaging and it taught people that you should put ice in, put a little bit more than 25 mLs. They were promoting 35 mLs at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and tonics... They would. They're, 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 sure. they're in the business of selling gin. <laughs> no, of course, that was the real reason they were doing the promotion. Of course, I'm, I, 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 you know, I'm definitely not that naive, but it, it definitely made the gin and tonic taste better. It was now this tall drink. And I, in this period, because I started in this industry around 98, I was a gin and tonic drinker. Mm-hmm. I worked in a wine shop and it was either a beer or a gin and tonic when I went to the pub and I loved it. And so as it was more ice was going in, I was starting to enjoy it. And actually significantly for me, I was starting to notice the difference between the flavor of gins and how it interacted with the tonic. At the time, I could actually tell the difference between the gins, which mm-hmm. I don't think, I think my friends yeah. <laughs> didn't believe Probably me. Probably thought you were crazy. <laughs> and also to note as well at this time, like, tonic in terms of offerings not a, not a saturated feel by any point so like that is the one variable that stays stays the same at that time and you can taste the difference between the gins because of that yeah, yeah there was i think it was still schweppes and it was britvic mm-hmm. those are the two that i i remember and if you came came across uh, this to this side of the world you had the um added uh, uh the adage of um uh, Can- Canada Dry. Canada Dry, of course, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so those were the, the three tonic waters. I do think that if you look at sort of how modern gin culture has evolved in the last 20 years and how the tonic water culture, it really has been the big change, though. Mm-hmm. You know, gun, gun tonic did really take over. And I don't have actually anything, to, despite how it might come across, I'm not really against gun tonic. If it's pipes and systems are well maintained and cleaned and so on but mm-hmm. so often they are not they're not and so it's not a guaranteed and so a bottle is a guaranteed way of getting you know if you ever consistency went, yeah consistency if i went to a good bar i'd probably assume that they were keeping and they had gun tonic i'd probably assume they were doing a good job of keeping they're it looking clean. after it but yeah. you know but so often so mm-hmm. gin and tonics in my opinion went out really of fashion because of gun tonic and not being kept well that's that's so interesting and then in that period that we're talking about early as we would look at it these days cocktail renaissance at what period do bartenders start looking at this as a drink as a as a cocktail right rather than a simple highball or do they at all and and when does it really break back into the mainstream 
Gosh, I think it's taken a long, long time, even with cocktail culture. You know, I think people started serving them as quality drinks again, which is good. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, in America, it would be the lime garnish and in England, the lemon lemon mm-hmm. garnish. And, and you know, that would be the big divide, you know, you know, like, you know, between lemon or lime, you know, yeah. and that was the USA, <laughs> UK thing. But I, you know, I do think that probably the most significant moment, you know, gin started coming back. You know, around I would say the beginning of two thousand. You know, got to hand it to Hendrix. They they yep. they they sort of you know popped in and said, "Hey, here, here's a new gin." Mm-hmm. Um, Probably yeah, introduced most people to the idea of botanicals, even right, right. the rose and cucumber story. Yeah. So that happens two thousand. You know, and then you know, sort of Sipsmith comes around two thousand eight, sort mm-hmm. of defining craft gin yep. a little bit more, and laws change, and a lot of people get inspired by both of those. You know, I always blame blame Hendrix for the amount of gins that tried to do their own version of cucumber and rose because none of them ever quite managed no. to sort of do it the way that, <laughs> but they did. But you know, Sipsmith sort of inspired a lot more craft gins, and again, some were great some were, were yeah. bad you know but you know people learn on the job and they, they they got better and gin just started getting a better and better reputation mm-hmm. and gin had to come back i was actually working on a gin called plymouth gin which mm-hmm. i'm sure you talked about a lot with the discussion on the pink gin mm-hmm. and um and uh the gentleman i was working for was a gentleman by the name of charles rolls and he was a bit of a visionary in my opinion because he bought the plymouth gin distillery in 1996 and that was before the gin boom really sort of yeah, took off. That would sure. start happening mid-2000s, right? You know, with the sort of momentum that Hendrix had created. And Plymouth was part of driving that. And I was working for Plymouth, and it was great. I was doing lots of gin educations, mm-hmm. and that's really where I learned my, I guess, my stripes in the gin world was yeah. working under him. But around 2003, he sold Plymouth uh, in 2005. But around 2003, he started toying with the idea of tonic because he saw that the gin boom was going to happen and that tonic wasn't good and gun yeah. tonic and bottle tonic needed to come back. And so he created Fever Tree, which was launched in 2005. <laughs> Often when people say, what is the most important gin launch of the last 20 years? I say Fever Tree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but it's, it's so true. And, and, and I can remember, you know, being a, a UK native, I can remember at the time when those ads were rolling out and they were saying, you know, there's that line, whatever it is that, you know, like three quarters of your drink is the mixer. And that's so important. And I'm like, that's smart. That was really smart of them. Yeah. I think that the consistency of that message and they still tell that story to mm-hmm. this day, if three quarters of your drink is the tonic, then make mm-hmm. sure you choose a good tonic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, absolute genius and, 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 and have continued with that. So they created that category. I think of, you know, making people think about their, quality of their tonic water so we were starting to think about the quality of our gin the launch of fever tree started making us think about the quality of our tonic water Mm -hmm. and so and of course there'd been definitely a cocktail movement that made us think about how we should serve a better gin and tonic it should be cold it should be tall it should be refreshing there should be ice there should be a good garnish Mm -hmm. and so all of those things started to, to come together you know meanwhile you know a place where the cocktail renaissance kind of took a little bit longer to kick off was um, Spain. Mm-hmm. I've always loved Spain for doing their own thing, right? You know, <laughs> sherry bars, love them. They, vermouth bars are massive over there right now. Yeah. And love them. And of course, they really redefined what a gin and tonic was for themselves mm-hmm. and started putting it in this giant goblet, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, Fever Tree was available for them. And other tonic waters were starting to trickle in. And of course, we'd had the gin boom just really happening. And instead of like really championing 
championing cocktail culture, like say New York or London was, they just went and championed this new serve of of gin and tonics which blew it wide open and then obviously as well like that makes sense too if you're if you it's it's quite hard to drink a martini i would say for example as as just one drink in a very warm setting so i can sure. understand why the gnt kind of does better there right yeah exactly i mean it's still hard to explain why it does so well in england with only three weeks of summer but yeah but 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 yes in spain <laughs> makes total sense yeah. so let's get into that serve and i, I do want to get into the, the spanish you know gin tonic as they call it there yep. but i want to get into those but let's talk about your approach to making a gnt um, all of the different components of it. And let's start with gin. And of course, I believe you're the, the first <laughs> guest on this show that has your own gin brand. But look, this is, this is Forged Gin is something that's been brought up by so many guests. And there's a reason for that. I'm assuming, and they're bartenders. So tell us what you were setting out to do in the beginning and tell us how that relates to what you think about when you're making a gin cocktail and then, I guess, G&T by extension. Sure. Um, obviously, you know, Having the hindsight of creating a gin with a lot of knowledge of what cocktail culture is and this gin and tonic boom, we just set out to make a gin that would taste good in all of those classic gin drinks that essentially made gin famous. And of course, if you can't taste great in a martini or gin and tonic, you really, as a gin, probably should sort of pack your bags and mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> move to Louisville and make whiskey or something. I don't know. But the, 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 the idea behind it was to really get ideas in from bartenders of what makes a good cocktail gin and then try and make that gin and then deliver it back to bartenders, get their opinions on what was, if it was working well in lime citrus drinks, lemon citrus drinks, and then sort of that back and forward made sure it tasted good in classic cocktails. And I think, and I'm really flattered that so many people have mentioned Fords on the show, but I think that part of the reason they have is because we made it to taste well and taste good in a classic right. gin drink because a lot of dr- gins were sort of going off on a tra- the trajectory. The tangents, yeah, for yeah. sure. And and that's good because that creates excitement in the category, but it yeah. kind of sort of alienates the way a certain classic drink should 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 taste. And so that's sort of what we set out to do with Fords. And of course, one of the key drinks for us was the gin and tonic. And for me, you know, gin should definitely sing juniper always, right? Yep. You know, and Fords, we're half our recipes juniper. We celebrate it like, you know, like no other botanical, really. Yeah. I think that citrus is a big key component of it. You know, if you have a gin that has good citrus components, then that's going to bring that effervescence. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and the reason I think that London Dry Gin is such a good gin and tonic category, is that coriander just brings that structure through. And when the coriander kind of talks to the quinine, it's like a really sort of like, they, they say hello to each other, really. Yeah. You know, and if you ever take a gin and just add some water, you start to see those flavors really develop in that gin. So gin and tonic is really just letting Expanding the gin... that. Yeah. <laughs> and so just the quinine is a complement to the flavor of juniper. It's definitely a complement to the flavor of coriander. And it definitely wants a little bit of citrus to brine it up, you know. And of course, in many ways, the, uh, the tonic's bringing in a little bit of sweetness to the mix and there's a lot of bitterness in gin. So mm-hmm. the two things happen together they sort of create this little miracle in a glass add some bubbles and it's sort of heaven on a hot sunny day what don't bubbles make better (laughs) (laughs) and again like everything you're saying there i can't keep i can't stop coming back in my mind to this idea of 600 years of r&d and there's a reason (laughs) that's popular and those ingredients and i've thought about this 
in, in relation to the martini before, but it's perhaps even more true with gin. Like the one thing that I find to be the the incredible magic of a drink like the martini is you're taking an you're taking gin, and you're taking vermouth, which as well is is a wine but with botanicals, right? It's it's a, it's a botanical wine. There's so many flavors going on. These things shouldn't work together. The fact that they do is a miracle. And it's the same with tonic. I, you know, it's interesting because a lot of, or a certain category of vermouth, you know, um, introduced around the same time as tonic water sort of became popular, you know, 1840s, 1850s, contained, you know, um, uh, basically quinine in it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, quina lillet, dubonnet, yeah. things like that, you know, the, you know, as used in the... Vesper Martini and so on. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, there was definitely something in the flavor of it that liked gin because it was getting introduced into vermouth, which was ending up in your martinis. And, of course, it's the star of, mm-hmm. of tonic water, you know, so that the, the two go together. Mm-hmm. So, yes, just like um, a martini, the gin and tonic sort of really takes on that and goes on that path. I think unlike the martini, the martini has got a lot of variants. You can make the martini around. Right. The variants of a gin and tonic aren't so much in method, you know, wet, dry, all those different things. You know, there's so many different types of vermouth. It's more in the, you know, ingredients of gin, tonic, ice, Mm -hmm. and just making it really, really well. And so, of course, the simplest thing I would say to anybody is make sure you get a good gin, Mm -hmm. make sure you get a good tonic. Mm -hmm. And then it's all about, you know, making sure you can taste the gin in your gin and tonic. So put enough gin in it. And take us from there. Take us, take us from there. So if I'm, if I'm saying, Simon, make me the world's best gin and tonic right now. Forget about your ice and slice days. Those are past. <laughs> They've gone. Make me the world's best. What would you do? Or what are the things you would focus in on? Take me through the process. Sure. It's, it's, it's funny. You can do lots of sort of fancy little things. And there are nice tips that can make me look smart. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you um, take your tonic water and turn your tonic into ice cubes and, uh, you know, things like <laughs> yeah. that, you know, they can be done. But I have almost in every cocktail that I ever make, I'm a purist and I yeah. just do things the way they should. And, and I think that probably speaks to why Ford's is the way it is, too. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a gosh, I'm going to have to sort of talk to um, that 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 formula that we talked about with Fever Tree earlier. But it's definitely take one part gin to three parts tonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, build it over lots of fresh ice. Mm-hmm. And then, this is the most controversial statement of the entire thing, a lemon as the garnish. Now, okay. I believe Take it should there. be a lemon. <laughs> I do believe it should be a lemon because lemon loves juniper. The two things just go together really, really well. Yeah. If you have a low-content juniper gin... The lime makes sense because coriander and lime go well together. And yep. so, and if you haven't got coriander or juniper in your gin, then... It's not gin anymore. It probably isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's, you don't have juniper, but, of but course. If, yeah. if you've got low juniper and no yes. coriander, then we're, 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 we're somewhat... Anyway, yes. Yeah. So um, so for me, and then it's just a, like a nice garnish. Although I do like accentuating garnishes, which is why I like the Spanish mm-hmm. you know, way of doing things. Because something like... Um, Rosemary goes very well with juniper as an example, and that makes for a nice touch in in, in the summer. Uh, You know, adding a splash of bitters, you know, for me, celery bitters. Oh, yeah. I I can hear you here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so there are ways to make it sort of a little bit more interesting, but Mm -hmm. I am definitely classic gin, tonic, tall glass, always a tall glass for me, not the... Not the balloons. Yeah, well, or I like the balloons, but not not the the, the, the um, oh. old-fashioned glasses for a gin and tonic. I prefer a tall glass. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a verging on a huge crime there. <laughs> yeah, used to. You know, again, a part of how gin tonic used to taste. Certainly, when I first came to the U.S. around two thousand two, two thousand three, was it would be fifty. You know, half of your glass was gin, <laughs> half of it was gun tonic in a. Yeah, in, in, a, in an old-fashioned glass, and you know, and of course, you just like hit in the face with gin. But of course, we <laughs> want those tall glasses as well to preserve uh, carbonation, carbonation, and to, to help funnel those aromas up to us. Where we're, you know, we're tasting there first. What you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I dabble. <laughs> what about the the lemon garnish, though? Because one of our previous guests talking about this specific drink said that they always like to avoid the way of the wedge because what people will do <laughs> is they'll just see that they'll squeeze it in their drink immediately without tasting anything and they won't know whether it's balanced or not like again i don't know how much control you want to have over the guest's experience but what how do you feel about that i don't mind that i you know okay. and I'm, I'm i'm usually one to fidget around with my drink anyway so it's sort of like yeah, i'll probably squeeze the lemon in halfway through and see mm-hmm. how that d- d- develops the taste you know something i actually often do with fords because fords is made with grapefruit lemon and oranges i actually do a wheel of all three of those citruses Amazing. and i think that the reason i do that for forge is because that's what's in the in the um i guess in the in the recipe but that's what i liked about the spanish style mm-hmm. because if you sort of take it take the art seriously of garnishing a spanish gnt mm-hmm. you're looking at the flavors within the gin within the gin first and then you're pairing it with the different garnishes that you can put in mm-hmm. or picking garnishes that accentuate those flavors you know something that's already in the gin and just like you know, turning it up a notch, you know? Mm-hmm. Those classic rules of pairing, whether it comes to, like, wine and food or whatever, like, either two things that are the same or two things that oppose. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. So so I've always liked that, you know, and I think that if you're really sort of being a perfectionist about your gin and tonic, mm-hmm. look at the flavors in the gin and tonic. And I'm not saying look at the label, because sometimes you won't actually taste what <laughs> it says on the label, but give the gin a taste mm-hmm. and go, oh, yeah, I do get the citrus. I do get the, there's a lot of juniper here, mm-hmm. juniper, lemon, you know, whatever. There's lots of citrus. I'm going to accentuate that, right? You know, there's and there's that flavor. There's a, there's that book out there too. I I want to ask for some recommendations from you in terms of like specific garnishes for the Spanish gin tonic. But there is that book out there that I think in the UK we call the Flavor Thesaurus. I think I it's it. got a different name here, but they have those pairings, right? I referenced that book. This is um, I referenced that book when I was putting together the recipe for Ford's gin. It's such an incredible book. I, I was like, I was like, I would look up juniper and look at the flavors that went with juniper. And then I would look at the flavors in classic gin drinks. And I was using it as a guide. It's I was using incredible. a few other flavor guide books mm-hmm. too, and, and botanical books and so on. But mm-hmm. that was really what sort of drove our process. It was taking mm-hmm. that chef like approach yeah. and looking at it from that perspective. I mean, I, we used to use that book all the time in, in, in the kitchen when I worked in kitchens in London, whether it was just, whether it was just working on something like, family meal or whether it was like working on developing new dishes with other chefs and like it's such an incredible resource it was such an eye-opener for me I, th- I think it's that book it's certainly one of the books i had that where i learned and this is after working in gym for 15 years that a perfect pairing for the flavor of juniper is olives lemon and it listed orange and rosemary and a few others right mm-hmm. but at, those were at the top of the list and i was like damn Obviously, we talk about olive and, and you know, and twists of lemon on our martinis. Like, where did that come from? And here is there a you book, go. yeah, <sighs> saying it's a perfect pairing. And I was like, I'm only learning this now. <laughs> anyway, but of Mind course, blowing. I didn't really only learn it then. You know, a significant, but it's, it's amount that of reminder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned bitters, rosemary, any other. If you're serving your gin in that kind of yeah balloon style Spanish 
version? Any other garnishes that really stand out to you that you enjoy and people maybe don't expect? I have always loved putting just one star anise into my Spanish gin and tonic because the great thing about Spanish gin and tonic is it lasts a while. Mm -hmm. So the flavors do infuse into the overall drink and the drink starts to develop and change and the star anise just adds this sort of refreshing refreshing nature to it, you know? So I like that and I do like putting things like cinnamon in it, things that will not automatically be noticed by the palate, but as I go on, they start to soak in and the flavors start to come out. But star anise might be a personal favorite and I do like putting herbs in like mint and citrus yeah. because it just, the whole thing's a experience of- yeah, it makes it pop. It's a whole, let's be refreshing. Mm -hmm. And Mint says, I'm going to refresh your drink. You know, so I, <laughs> I, I like that you sort of, by, by, by nature of making a ginny tonic of the Spanish style, you get to <laughs> you get to essentially, you know, have creative license over your gin mm -hmm. and tonic. And I think that's a lot of fun. So I have one last thought about the gin and tonic here to, uh, to share with you. And I'm, I'm keen to hear your opinion. So I think that it, as a drink, almost suffers somewhat from being perhaps the most well-known gin cocktail in the world because I don't think this is the first ever gin drink you should have if you've never had gin before. And I think that's a shame. How, how do you feel about that? This is not a beginner's cocktail to, to drink anyway. The gin, gin and tonic. Mm -hmm. it's a, that's an interesting one because you could probably argue that the martini's not a beginner's gin drink. No, either, no, no. Right? I think I think that's that's <laughs> up there. Yeah, that's right. like you, you graduate to martinis. Yeah. You know, and maybe drinks that are sort of more approachable, like the South Side or the Tom Collins, because they have a little bit of sweetness and mm -hmm. you know, and they they let the flavor of the gin still do the work within it, but it's mm -hmm. got that sort of component of simple syrup and yeah. citrus, right? To bring it alive might be a good way. Um, in mm -hmm. i i but i don't know if i agree that the, the gin and tonic is um is that but it's one of those drinks that is a license to drink on a sunny afternoon and there aren't many like that you know and it nothing tastes better in that setting mm -hmm. i think that if you went into a bar you know a dark dingy bar at 6 p.m yeah and you never had a gin and tonic before and that was the moment mm -hmm. it might not fit it but i think that if you put yourself in a deck chair on mm -hmm. one of those sunny days <laughs> in an English country garden and you know and you decided it wasn't going to be pims this time and you're not going to have a pims cup you're going to have a gin and tonic it would you would be like this is good but it's usually because of the sort of bitter notes of the tonic and the bitter notes combined with uh, of, of the gin combined with a little bit of sweetness that it makes you want a second one right so it's easy it's a sessionable drink mm -hmm. you know because of that it's not overly sweet you don't go oh delicious and then oh this is too sweet i need something yeah, yeah. else you need to move on yeah, yeah so it, it then it becomes a drink that's easy to drink mm -hmm. and i think that that's why maybe the first one might be tough but yeah i don't think it takes very long before you go you know what i could drink gin and tonics <laughs> i think that also just comes very much from a personal preference where astonishingly or i'm embarrassed to admit that it's it's still a drink that i struggle with i can i can definitely appreciate its merits but it's still something i struggle with so maybe that's just my thinking there and also you've clearly always as you said like you've always been a gin and tonic drinker but i think there's definitely more people in your camp than there are in mine <laughs> well, especially from the uk here's a because i i do think and you know not to switch the the drink but um that there is merit to gin and soda right let's the gin I, yeah Jin, Jin do its work without the sort of combination of quinine. But when I was last in Japan, and of course Japan known for doing whatever they can to perfect perfect a highball, mm -hmm. they were doing a drink called the Gin and Sonic, which was yes. half soda and Amazing. half tonic, right? So you didn't have 
too sweet mm-hmm. and too much quinine, you know, but you had just enough and it complemented the gin and let the gin do a lot more of the, and that might, you know, more of its mm-hmm. job as it, as it were in the drink. And that might be a good place to start for anybody. Who's, training wheels. Yeah. If you're not, you know, not, <laughs> if you, you're listening and you haven't had a gin and tonic, maybe try gin and sonic before, mm-hmm. spe- you know, especially if you're a vodka soda drinker, you know. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Simon, that's been so much fun chatting all things uh, history, gin, the two of my favorite subjects, and just the gin and tonic in general. Um, how about we finish the show with our standard five stock questions? Are you yes. ready for it? Yes. How are you feeling? Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can come up with the answers as, 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 as we go. <laughs> Amazing. So question number one. Um, and this is probably by now for you somewhat theoretical, right? But what style or category would uh, of spirit would typically enjoy the most real estate on on a professional back bar for you? Um, that would probably be a spirit. Oh, it would probably be whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there are so many different styles: mm-hmm. Scotch, you know, bourbon, rye. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly my home bar at home is more whiskey than it does gin, but mm-hmm. obviously I created a gin that <laughs> I like myself. So, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, like too many others. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, believe it or not, I do have quite a considerable amount of gin because a gin lover won't just like one gin, you know, no, impossible. And, and, I, and I am a gin lover bona fide. So, mm-hmm. um, it, I would say that's probably the second most real estate goes to, um, gin, gin. but I think that I like real estate going to, and I guess they don't categorize the spirits, but to the vermouths and the things that can change it up and the different liqueurs that you can have in the different bitters and the things that work with your gin or work with your whiskey. I think that's mm-hmm. where the real estate really goes for me. Amazing. I love that. Second question. Which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? The corkscrew. Um, because if you don't have a corkscrew, it's really hard to open a bottle of wine. Like if you don't, you know, like, <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> you know, like if you didn't have a, a muddler, you could maybe find something to do it. If you didn't have a bar spoon, you could find a spoon, you know, you can m- MacGyver almost any, any tool, in any, the- any tool. But if you haven't got a bottle opener, you know, I, I you know, like if you don't have the zester, you got a, you can get a knife, whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's uh, for me, if you can't open a bottle of wine. Wise words. You know, and I know you can push the cork in, but it's yeah. just, not, I don't know. It's a, yeah. Or the putting it in the shoe and bang it on the wall technique. <laughs> oh, yeah. No one wants to see no. that in a bar on a Friday night. Not with a Chateau Lafitte 1966. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. How's that sediment looking now? Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to decant this. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? It probably came from my dad when I got my first job. Um, and that was, you know, because I was a dishwasher. It was the first job in the industry. And, and he just said, I know it's just a dishwasher, but you put your heart into this and you're going to be the best dishwasher there is. And if you finish the dishes, you're going to ask your boss, what can I do? And he said, That's, that, that was his advice. He said, it's all about work ethic. But I will say that, you know, to echo Anthony Bourdain, you know, you know, be kind to your server and tip well. I do believe that that's really good advice. Mm-hmm. And it's especially as well, perhaps Brits visiting the US who don't always understand the the, the, the payment <laughs> structure and wages here in hospitality. Like you're literally paying someone's yeah. wage by tipping. Like. Yeah. And um, put the vermouth in the fridge. 
<laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, which one would it be? This is the hardest question on earth. I definitely think that. I think there are different moments and different eras in time. You know, if I could have a time machine, I could pick that. It could Feel free be, to. You know, it could be Milk and Honey in mm -hmm. 2012, 2011, right? You know, like it could be the Pegu in 2007, you know, or I, there's these moments in time that would be great. I'd love to sort of try the American bar in 1893 when Ada started, but I have no idea if that could be my favorite bar because I, I wasn't there. So I find, I found the question very difficult. And of course, knowing this question was coming, I was like, I need to look up the best 24 hour bars. Cause then I know that I would get kicked out and I could just stay there forever, you know, but of course I didn't find any that I truly loved on the, you know, on no. the Google sphere. So not um, Weatherspoons on Leicester square. <laughs> Is that 24 hours? <laughs> there, there, there used to be one in my chef days that we definitely go to <laughs> after there, a night up. <laughs> there is there is one bar and it's not really a cocktail bar that I think I had the most fun in and that was called Andres Carne de Res and it's in a place called Cheer just outside of Bogota. And this place is crazy. It's made out of all recycled materials which have been turned into pieces of art or furniture or whatever by art students. And they make their own labels for almost every spirit just for the hell of it and they serve i think it's like you know steak and other food and they have dance floors intermittently and this thing goes on forever and ever and it's like you're in a brick and brack place but it's wild and it goes on all night i actually believe they have a um a little nursery so if your friends get a little bit too drunk you can go and send them there and pick them up later you know you get, get a tag for them and stuff like that you know this and i and i've had a couple of nights there and they've and it's always been wow that was kind of life-changing. So, <laughs> so I, yeah, I might be too old for that bar now. No, no of course I'm not. Nah. Hey, let's go. <laughs> Final question. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Final plug. <laughs> it, 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 would, it, it's, it would be. It's, it's, it's sad to say. It's not sad to say. Actually, my entire life's work has led up to making Forge Gin. I worked in gin for so many years, and so, of course, uh, and my favorite drink in the world is a martini, a well-made martini. Um, and so it would be a Ford's gin martini, probably four to one around that, orange bitters, a twist, hopefully made by someone like Salvatore Calabresi, you know, someone like that could come along and make that final drink for me. That would probably be the, 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 the last one. Amazing. And you know what? If you'd said anything other than the, the gym brand that you've spent all this time and effort, <laughs> you know, working towards and launching and also being a martini drinker, like yeah. your, your gin brand has to also be perfect for your martini. How could it be anything other? I mean, I, I do. I, I, I do love it. So, I mean, it's it's really, really weird. It's not really weird. I spent, you know, three years developing the flavor and spent 15 years prior to that really deciding what made a good gin from, you know, from my perspective, but from a bartender's perspective. And mm -hmm. so, you know, yeah, it does. It, I think it does make sense, mm -hmm. but, I, it, but it feels awkward plugging <laughs> it right now, you know, so. <laughs> well, you know, you've, you've had you've had so many other plugs from other bartenders. So, you know, I think by this point, our listeners know that that is a genuine recommendation and something they should be going out and trying if they haven't already yeah thanks simon thank oh, you so much thank you so much this was which was great fun it's been a lot of fun um let's go grab the world's coldest martini yep and a gin tonic <laughs> and a gin. <laughs> of course oh my god Wait. okay that was a lot of info but here's the good news 
every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>